Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. From the Tox and Tasting Studios, I'm Bullhagen. I'm Beric. And I'm Vicker. This is the Clerical Airs Podcast, the show that shows you what's behind the collar. How you doing, Pete? Hey, Pete. I'm Bullhagen. Did we do this part? No, no, I forgot. <laughs> We're recording this directly after the first one. So A double show. Last one. We'll try to make this more semi-excellent than the last one. Berg, you've got an interesting coffee cup going on today. Yeah, so Vicar brought me coffee. Uh, it was Aid Association for Lutherans, which no longer exists. Right? Yeah. It's all thriving now. So. Remember when I was in high school, I was in a, a youth gathering at uh, in uh, New Orleans. Oh, okay. And uh, and one of the, 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 the big mass events, the, the, the mayor of New Orleans uh, came and, and gave us a greeting. Oh, really? Yeah. And she goes, she said, I would like to thank the AIDS Association for Lutherans for making this possible. <laughs> That's funny. Oofta. <laughs> oh, speaking of, our, uh, the St. Paul's Lutheran School just got uh, awarded NLSA accreditation. Oh, and so, congratulations. Yeah, we are having a uh, celebration sometime. I don't quite remember when. I think I'm supposed to do something for it, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we invited uh, a bunch of um, politicians and the like. So, oh, dignitaries, yeah. like who? Um, well, a couple of our our governor Kim Reynolds and a couple of um, senators and Congress people and that sort of thing, and uh, even the even former President Trump has been invited. So we haven't heard back wow. from anybody if they're coming yet. So. But Nancy Kate, Pelosi, do you invite me? <laughs> I, I, I wasn't in charge of the inviting, but I don't, I don't think she was invited. So we, uh, uh, but KMLJ is, KMLJ is coming to record it. Uh, okay. So that's good. And the newspaper is going to cover it. So look at you. So yeah, no, it's, was a long process. So thanks. Wh- be to when God, is that? You said, is, is that, mm. I don't remember actually. So no. I've kind of a, your wife will make sure you're in the right place. Well, actually, today when we record, it's uh, our anniversary. So oh, we'll make this fast. So you still have to go <laughs> shopping, don't you? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'll even see her today for all the <laughs> stuff we have going on. Um, I I actually have um, after this, I have a um, a person in hospice to visit. Then we have catechism class, mm-hmm. and then we have uh, church because we changed church from tuesday to wednesday night so it could all be on one night so so yeah this is your busy day so well, yeah. let's get through this then we're getting her done this might be a shorter episode but we'll we'll power through oh we will have uh plenty of content for the listener all right so well, what are we preaching on for the 18th <coughs> sunday after trinity we've got matthew chapter 22 verses 34 through 46 and this one has kind of two two parts to it again. We have the it starts out with the great commandment. The you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. So this the setting is we've got Pharisees and Jesus talking again. And then he asks them whose son is the Christ? He says, "What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he?" And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Hmm. Hmm. That's a a good question. Doesn't... uh... Peter make the at Pentecost make the same type of an argument, mm-hmm. right? He does. Uh, how can he David's son also call him Lord? I might be getting that wrong. So it's a, a theological debate about the divinity of Christ, right? So Berg, why is why is he having this discussion with them? Well, this takes place right before uh, Christ's death. So this is during his last week uh, 
before he is crucified. Um, I used to know the timeline, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, and, I mean, really, you know, we... Honestly, I mean, this text is pretty, really, I mean, it's tailor-made for young pastors. Why? First part is the law. The second part is the gospel, right? <laughs> I mean, really, mm-hmm. right? This uh, Here, let me... <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> right? Because first you have a question of what is the law, right? And they want Jesus to answer what is the greatest commandment because they're in their debates about which of the 613 commandments that God gave to um, you know Moses on Mount Sinai. Which of those is the greatest? And 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 to to us that that question is a kind of a simple thing. Of course, you know the, the first table of the commandment: love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second half of the commandments, right? And uh, but they didn't understand that really. And frankly, I don't think we understand it. We don't understand it because we don't realize that. Love drives the commandments, right? Love is embodied in very concrete ways in the Ten Commandments. How do we love God? How do we love our neighbor? Um, All of the writings of Scripture, you know, the Law and the Prophets, all of these are just simple um, expositions of this dual command to Mm -hmm. love, right? But it also has to do with... with the position of the heart. Well, and that sounds good, right? I mean, everybody wants love, right? Mm-hmm. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, right? Mm-hmm. The 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 issue is though, and because I think a lot of people would actually think that, oh, well, then the law is really the gospel, right? Because love, ah, that's so beautiful, <laughs> right? But then you start to think about it, right? That the law doesn't just demand outward observance, but that it demands purity in your mind and in your heart and in your intentions. Because the Pharisees didn't understand in the sense of they were just concerned about the outward aspect of it. If you can just check it off the list, well, I haven't murdered anybody today, so, you know, it doesn't matter that I hated my neighbor, mm-hmm. right? It it has to do with the heart. Peter didn't understand this when he asked Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? Mm-hmm. And so the law is love, and what the law demands from us is far more than we could ever give. Because love never ends. And everybody thinks that uh, passage from you know First Corinthians is, oh, our love will never end. It's so beautiful, blah, blah, blah. No, do you know how much of a burden that is? That your job is never done. The commandments don't take you into account at all. It is God's living will, and he demands that you love, that you love him with everything, that you love your neighbor with everything. And that, so that is a burden in marriage, too. Paul teaches, husband, love your, your wives. wife. Right? And the wife is to submit to her husband, mm-hmm. which is, once again, an act of faith. Right? That ultimately, if you follow the, this road of love, if you follow the Ten Commandments to their conclusion, it's going to kill you. Because if you keep loving and loving and loving... Eventually, you're not going to have any more to give, and it's still not done. How do we? How, the, that's why. That's why the only one who could actually fulfill the law was crucified. Was that? De- yeah, right. <laughs> he died. Right. <laughs> he perfectly loved his father, and he perfectly loved his neighbor. Right. And so that's why. Uh, I don't know. We've got this weird sort of thing about the law. People think that it's just a bad thing, and it's like, no, the law isn't a bad thing. The law is a very good thing. Do you the know law- who? Do you know who understands that concept, by the way, about loving can kill you, in a sense? Is, uh, like, if you go in parts of, uh, of Africa, you know, I remember talking to a, a pastor there and a church leader over there, mm-hmm. and uh, how he goes, like, what am I supposed to do when I have, you know, 15 boys outside of my house, dwelling? I wouldn't call it even a house, really. Uh, orphan boys. Uh, who are hungry, right? And I have no room left, and he still finds ways to to try and care for him. When he himself, I he was over here once, and I showed him the safety house, the Sukup safety house at the fairground, mm-hmm. which is uh, nice for for them. It's like this uh, made out of a modified grain bin type home, right? That can survive and last a long time, survive hurricanes and that kind of thing. 
And uh, when I showed it to him, he looked at it and he was like, wow, this is huge. This is like he like, you know, he like nudged his wife the way that I would nudge my wife if I were taking her to like a really nice house in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, and his first thought was, think of how I could help some of those kids. Right. It was the, it was the, the burden of of love that was really wearing on him because what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. You know, love made the command of love made it very hard for him. And what's interesting about that kind of love is he wasn't it wasn't like the Pharisees where, well, I'm going to love so I get God's favor in return. It was a genuine Christian humility driving this, these kids. Right. Which is why after we are reborn by the Holy Spirit, once we have received faith from God, we then begin to fulfill the commandments, these commandments of love, Mm -hmm. even though we still do them imperfectly in this life. Right. Right. And so that was, you know, love and the command of love and the love that flew up floor came out of the gospel made it really hard for him to continue to do his work because it was overwhelming. Right. And then, you know, so all this talk about love, right? Love. All this talk about love and the law, right? Um, but now we get onto the gospel, right? Jesus asks a very, very important question, right? Which actually has to do with our salvation, right? Who is the Christ? Is he David's son? They answer yes. Well, if he's just David's son, he can't redeem anybody. Right. And then, you know, um, uh, Jesus uses quotes from the scriptures, right? He quotes Psalm 110, which you should all go and read. It's beautiful. Uh, that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, here we see uh, the gospel. Here we see the exaltation of Christ. Here we see Christ after he has suffered and died and has en- and risen again and now is entering into his glory. And that all of the enemies that he's putting under his feet... The final one to be put under his feet is death, death. right? Yeah. Death is the last enemy, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. This uh, psalm also brings with it uh, the uh, not just the ascension and exaltation of our Lord, but it also brings with it his humiliation, his suffering, because it says in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ, you know, as we learned... In catechism, that Christ is our vicar, prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Right. Mm-hmm. This psalm not only talks about Christ's kingship, but it also talks about his priesthood. And how is Jesus a priest? Well, he sacrifices himself upon the altar of the cross uh, for the forgiveness of our sins, and he is a priest forever. In that, he once he is raised from the dead, he will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. And this is all laid out in the book of Hebrews just so very beautifully and plainly um, in that in the old days, before Christ, high priests had to be changed because they died, and they died because they were sinners. But mm-hmm. Christ is sinless, and because he is sinless, um, he, w- he was immortal, which is why he had to lay down his own life in order to pay for our sins. But now that he's raised again, death has no dominion over him. And this is why we have a high priest that will never change and a sacrifice that was once for all. Which, no, is, which is why, you know, I remember thinking as a child, and I think even people sometimes have trouble thinking in this way, you know, they've, from a timeline point of view. How is it that someone's death, you know, 2,000 years ago can have anything to do with me? And it's because he is the eternal he is risen never to die again. He is David's son, one of us, and also uh, our Lord, the, the Son of God as well. And and so that is a timeless aspect to, for the gospel. And that's why when you read this, when you hear this on Sunday, um, go back and read the entire psalm, and then see where this psalm is quoted in the New Testament, because it's quoted all over the place. And it will give you a fuller picture of what our Lord is talking about. You know, it's kind of like, you know, name dropping, right? Or uh, you say a line from a song, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, band-aids don't fix bullet holes. 
you say sorry just for show. <laughs> you live like that, you live with ghosts, right? What am I quoting? I have Swift. Right. I didn't, didn't know so, that. Me neither. Oh, We're not Swifties like oh you are. Oh, my gosh. See, I tried to come down and, you know. But that's the, pro- that's the thing is when Jesus said this one line, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, the Pharisees knew what he was talking about, right? They knew this entire psalm, and they could make the connections, right? So Jesus here is not just talking about his exaltation and shattering kings in the day of his wrath, but he's also talking about uh, his suffering and death, that he is the priest forever, how the priesthood and the kingship are finally united in one person. And he is actually, I think, trying to call them to repentance, Right. I mean, that's the only reason why we preach the gospel, right? Right. Is is because because he's saying, he's kind of showing them, okay, this is kind of what you're planning to do. I mean, do you realize what you're doing here? Right. And that don't be the kings that I'm going to shatter on the day of my wrath, right? But that's the problem, is that then what do they do? <laughs> I mean, the text is really, it's sad. It's really sad how this text ends, right? Because from that time on, no one dared to question him anymore, right? They don't ask him any more questions. Well, he that, that creed, the Shema that they repeat every morning when they wake up and before they go to bed, um, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. He was explaining that this is all in himself, the, right. the Christ, the Messiah. Right. And they, you know, and that's, I don't know, as a pastor, that's, I mean, it's a familiar feeling, but it's also a sad feeling mm-hmm. because you say something and rather than people engaging it, they just shut down. Right. Right. And when they shut down, the conversation is over. There's no more you can do. And I think that, you know, getting back to our last episode when we talked about the third commandment, this is why, you know, as Christians, um, we ought to listen, right? We ought to listen. We ought to engage. If we have questions, we should ask them, right? And engage on the basis of God's word because look at what happened to the Pharisees. Eventually, they just stopped engaging with Jesus. And all, I mean, really, all their questions were there just to tempt him, right? To test him so mm-hmm. they could call him on right. something. And they miss out on salvation. And so... um you know, if there's something that your pastor says that's hard or difficult or you think is wrong. Like our discussion in the last episode, what do you do? Right. You ask him, right? And, and, and you, you check it with scripture. And you check it with the scriptures, right? Uh, because you might have misheard it. Or uh, you, you know, or maybe he did flub up. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That happens, you know? by the way. That happens so much. As a circuit visitor, I talk to lots of people. And. You know, my pastor said this. I'm like, there's no possible way right. your pastor said that. There's no way he so, said that. So that's where it's just, you know. And I don't know. To me, that's one of the saddest things about this whole thing because Jesus is about to go to his death, right? This is one of the last times that he's going to preach the gospel, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he never gave up on them. No, he never gave up on them. And it's crazy because even... Everybody is silenced by it, and they don't ask anymore. And it's just, I don't know, it's heart, I guess it's heartbreaking. I, I don't know. Because they didn't know what to say. They knew, you know, the, the, they kind of could see what he was saying, and they knew he had an answer for everything. Because this also includes the disciples, right? I mean— I have a question. How, how many of these, these people might remember him from when he was a boy in the temple— or is that? Well, if he was 12. So we're talking 20 years, right? 20 years. Well, all the, because it says he was sitting with what? The, the learned, mm-hmm. right? The wise men who would have been third in their 30s, 40s, or older, right? Mm-hmm. A few of them could have been alive, you know, because I'm curious. I like if how many of them like, oh, this is a guy I remember when he was because they were they would have remembered because he amazed them. Right. With his questions. Right. He mm-hmm. amazed them with their with his questions. And, you know, well, and how many of them just forgot it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was 
this kid from Nazareth who showed up, asked some really cool questions, and, you know, maybe they didn't even get his name, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, yeah. Well, and how many of them were against him simply because of what the other Pharisees said? Because, oh, well, you know, that's the guy who says he's going to destroy the temple. Right. You know? I mean, just the—I mean, and, like, this is why I think, too, um, Matthew— Matthew is not strictly chronological because you look at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is already reacting to particular um, objections that people have to him. He's saying things like, uh, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, right? Um, And you only say that because people are saying that that's what you're saying, right? Right. So, so yeah, eh, you know. So it— it's a beautiful text of law and gospel. Um, one of the, I think, the the clearest distillations of it uh, in the lectionary uh, in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ends on kind of a sad note. So, so that brings us to uh, a uh, pastor piece, Theodore. So uh, we have an intro for this. I wonder what we should do next, Vicar. Hey, Peter, play the intro. So, uh, welcome to Pastor's Peace Theater with Pastor Berg. That mirror really, really doing its job, man. He's getting... (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, last time we talked about a little bit what lessons to learn from Seminex, right? Mm -hmm. And and now you have a a reading. Right. So, Seminex was, just for your, just just to remind you, Seminex was uh, this um, kind of schism in the Missouri Synod where the seminary faculty and the majority of the students left uh, in 1974 to 1987 uh, and became Seminex, or the Seminary in Exile, and then they eventually morphed into Christ Seminary Seminex, and then they were kind of absorbed into the ELCA when that was formed in the the late 80s. Um, And this was a a fight uh, for doctrine. You know, what do we believe about the Bible? Does the Bible contain errors? Um, is the Bible historically conditioned uh, with things like women's ordination or um, some of the social mores and that sort of thing? So, and and we t- discussed last time how it was the the people in the pews that really stepped up, right? And so um, you know it's interesting because we got Doctor Bullhagen's um, kind of list of um, things about Seminex. I, uh, I've always wanted here to bring uh, an outsider into this, someone who is not a member of the Missouri Synod who's looking at this fight. And so I think their perspective, and of course, I'm going to bring in the Protestants. The pro- you, you use that word once in a while. Can you explain what that is yeah. once again? So the Protestants were a group of pastors uh, kind of headed by J.P. Kaler uh, and the Hensel family, and they were— um, they were kicked out of the Wisconsin Senate in the 1920s because they uh, supported a man by the name of Bites uh, who called the Senate to repentance in one of his um, conference papers. Uh, and so um, all of these guys who wanted um, things like a fair trial, they wanted to talk about these issues, they were actually removed uh, from the roster in the Wisconsin Senate, and so they formed... Uh, the Protestant Conference, which is still in existence today. Um, and I, that's a very, very short, very, very simplistic um, history. I mean, the history is very, very involved. Um, but I thought it'd be neat to get kind of a, an outsider's perspective of the conflict going on in Missouri at this time. So this is from their journal uh, from November, December. Uh, their journal is Faith Life. And it's from the November-December 1975 issue. And it is entitled, Protestant versus Moderate. Your spirit is different from ours. And this is was written by Philemon Hensel. And that uh, subtitle, Your Spirit is Different from Ours, this is a quote from Luther to Zwingli. Okay. Well, actually, it wasn't to Zwingli, but I believe it was to, uh, was it to, it might have been to Booser. So... And it was during the Marburg colloquy when they were trying to find unity, and they couldn't find unity because the Reformed didn't believe 
that Christ was uh, bodily present in the mm-hmm. Lord's Supper. So, I mean, that should kind of clue you in on the, what direction what direction this paper is going to go. So, um, in 1931, right after Director J.P. Kaler's departure from the Wisconsin Senate Seminary in Mequon, then Thienesville, uh, Professor August Pieper listed in a Quartal Schrift article the numerous points of divergence between Zwingli's spirit and Luther's, signally uh, Zwingli's mixing politics and religion and temporal interests with spiritual, stressing love above faith, deferring to reason and default to faith, leaning toward unionism in, regard, in disregard of agreement and doctrine, relying more upon spirit than upon the written word, all of which uh, propensities he shared with Karlstadt, Munzer, Schwenk, Schwenkfeld, and all Calvinists. Pieper in his article, omitted mentioning his deposed colleague and the Protestants, however much he may have wished to publish the connection existing in his mind. In oral communication, of course, as we know, both he and his adherents among them, the late Professor Herman Fleischer of Northwestern College, dismissed the Protestants with the contemptuous wave of his hand as Zwinglians. Time has proven this epitaph unwarranted, and in the present instance in Missouri, we in turn do not wish to admit impediments to the marriage of true minds, if such in fact they be, by dismissing to casually as Zwinglian all of that part of the moderate protest which may be wrought in God. It is enough to remember that the moderates have risked much to remain faithful to their lights, only to have our judgment proven an error upon us in the end. So the reason why he tells this old history of what happened in the 20s and 30s mm-hmm. is to say, hey, look, we were judged harshly, right? We weren't given a fair trial and what mm-hmm. we were trying to say. And so he's saying, okay, so it behooves us, because we were wronged in this way, to give this moderate position a fair hearing, mm-hmm. right? We shouldn't just dismiss them out of hand, right? right? But we should actually be charitable and see what they're saying, okay? Mm-hmm. All right. And the moderates, of course, are the ones who walked out, right? Mm-hmm. So um, people might hate that, but, you know, honestly— I particularly dig their charity in all this, right? Because they want to give them a fair fair hearing. All right, we'll continue on. The Missouri Senate moderates have, over the past 30 years, registered a protest against official falsity functioning under the guise of a concern for correct doctrine in their Senate, as we Protestants have done in Wisconsin for 50. The similarities in our respective situations have sometimes obscured the latent divergences of spirit, and the untheological character of Missourian polemics in general has left ill-determined the theological root of that discord. It is accordingly more difficult to establish what spirit animates the moderate position and in how far it is defensible against a system which in its workings we recognize as identical with that substitution of Senate for Christ, which has reversed the understanding of the gospel and destroyed its fellowship in the Wisconsin Senate while posing insolently as contending for the one true faith. The moderate case has always seemed analogous to ours, but never, even from the publication of a statement of the 40 and 4 in 1945 till now, identical. So basically he's saying, hey, look, it may look the same, but it's not the same. Right. We have to get down to the root of it, right? Just because politics might play a role in Missouri, just as it played a role in our part, that doesn't mean that we are identical, right? Because he's going to say probably that there was a theological difference between what they had in mind and and what the what he would call the moderates. Right, because, I mean, you know, I have a shirt-tail relation who was removed uh, from the Wisconsin Senate as a protestant, uh, and the way that they did it was wrong. Um, it, was, it was very evil what they did to him, and uh, I, I hate it, you know? Mm-hmm. But just because... Um, the mechanics of synodical politics is at work and and can sometimes destroy the gospel, right? Or Mm -hmm. at least hamstring it. That's still untheological, right? That's Mm -hmm. different than looking for this theological root. Right. All right. It is important for us, if for no one else, that we should determine the the degree of consanguiny between the two positions, or rather between the spirits that animate our causes. Few will note, and fewer still remember, what we say here, and there's a whole bunch of uh, German, and here it's a a quote from Luther. 
I see clearly that all is lost, all scolding, all instructing, all admonishing, all threatening, all promising, all pleading, all imploring, all patience, all meekness, all dissimulation, all inviting helps nothing. No matter how I try to state, apply, and direct it, you won't buy it. All right, then, in God's name, here's mud in your eye. Maybe you'll buy that. If anyone regrets having adopted our position, let him drop it. If anyone is scared, let him run. The Protestant message, like Luther's here, the church, that is Wisconsin, Missouri, conservative, moderate, won't buy it. And why? Because our gospel doesn't sell. There is no market for it. It cannot profit the flesh. So once again, these guys are trying to get down to the theological issue, right? Mm-hmm. And So what precisely was the theological issue of the Protestants? What was it that they were calling to repentance? Um, there were cases earlier on in the 20s where seminary students uh, and teachers, as they had just you know finished their classes and stuff, they actually stole a whole bunch of things, okay? So they were in, uh, they were studying to be pastors and teachers, and they went around and they stole a whole bunch of things, okay, from, from people. And uh, the board found out who these people were, and they said, you can't be pastors or teachers because of what you've done here. Mm-hmm. Well, because these thieves were members of prominent Wisconsin families— the board overturned the decision and brought them back in. Oh. Okay, so that's one of the issues that happened here. Another issue that happened was um, um, Bites and some of the others felt that there was too much talk about you know, things like money. Um, there was too much reliance on synodical resolutions to get stuff done mm-hmm. rather than the gospel, that we were actually sub- substituting politics for right. the gospel. Um, and that was their main theological point. Okay. Was that what Christianity is becoming is churchianity. Um, that uh, just because I'm a, I, you know, am a on conven- a mem- A convention resolution kind of trumps... The Word of God. Right. And that is kind of where they came from. Or that, well, if I am a, a Missouri Senate member or a Wisconsin Senate member, I got her made. Right? Mm-hmm. I and we hear this all the time, right? Well, I was confirmed there. You know, I'm a member there. Haven't seen you in fifty years, but you know. <laughs> right? Right. And so what it does is it what they're what they're reacting against is sort of this formalistic outward adherence to things. Well, you know, you do all the right things, but the heart isn't right. Right. And so and that's and that's something that they just couldn't abide. So um, that that is what he's getting down to here, is that um, the gospel doesn't sell. And this will be, you know, the flesh doesn't want the gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay? So um, a document entitled The Case of the Charges Against Dr. Tejan, Dr. Tejan was uh, the president of Concordia Seminary at the time, reprinted in this issue of Faith Life, as presented in a benign mood by Vice President Oscar A. Gierken, helps the reader to focus his critical attention at several vital junctures in the present controversy within Missouri and to take the pulse of the moderate theology. We wish to touch on only a few items contained in this paper and in the moderate publications. The charges filed against the plaintiff resemble in tone and to some degree in content those aimed at Protestants these many years. The charge, for instance, that Dr. Tejan's written statements reveal or cause confusion has a familiar ring. Critics from August Pieper and John Mayer, authors of the Satanic Gutachten and Brief Review to the present, have dismissed the jarring truth contained in the 1926 Bites paper, which appeared under the comprehensive title, God's Message to Us in Galatians, The Just Shall Live by Faith, as a confusion of law and gospel. The late Dr. P.E. Kretzman too, one of the progenitors of the current conservative style in Missouri, hysterically and copiously scrawled the words hopeless confusion of law and gospel in the margins of a copy of the Wauwatosa Gospel, which is it, in the Concordia Seminary Library. The Bulow-Harnap charges run in the same vein. They, rep- they represent the bloodless and godless style of orthodoxy, in quotes, that has already done its worst to enslave and kill the gospel in the Wisconsin Senate. So basically it's whatever you don't, you know, if you don't say it right, 
according to the right formulations, right, you are you're out basically. Okay. So much that these accusers condemn is not only above censure; it is already one commonplace status in Christian understanding, partly through the heavy conflict in the Wisconsin Senate. There is nothing confusing except to the stilted mind, for example, in Dr. Teachin's assertion that there is no gospel in a vacuum. Unquestionably, the gospel is ineffectual unless applied where it is needed. The Savior put it uh, analogically, they that be whole need not a physician. Right. So that's one point that Teachin makes that's right, right? There is no gospel in a vacuum. Right. That's the whole point of the sermon. That's, you know, Mm -hmm. that's why we don't just read the scriptures, right? But we actually apply them. Right. So, yet, and here's the point, we pause at Dr. Tejan's responses to charges 6 and 7, which allege his rejection of the biblical record of creation and that he undermines the doctrine of the virgin birth. The citations from Faithful to Our Calling, while nodding in the direction of the traditional understanding of the origin of man, as recorded in Genesis, introduce nevertheless a mist of unspecified suggestions that camouflage creation myths which must contradict Scripture's commentary upon itself. Luke traces Jesus' lineage from Joseph back to Adam, and Paul expresses more than a vague truth about every man and every woman when he reminds Timothy that Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. He points unmistakably at one particular man and one particular woman. So, the Protestants are like, hey, Tejan is just... Wrong. He's just vague. Well, that's the problem, right? He is so slippery in his language that he nods in the Orthodox direction. But he doesn't... But he doesn't say it. He doesn't say what the Bible says. Right. Okay? So, similarly, in the matter of Isaiah's supposed double implication in his prophecy that a young woman should conceive any theological or spiritual advantage gained seems marginal in the insistence on another meaning besides his allusion to the Messiah, even if such a meaning is admissible on contextual grounds. Matthew expressly interprets the event of the virgin's conception in the light of Isaiah's prophecy. And lastly, even though the Old Testament on its own terms does not mention Jesus Christ, purely Peter clearly um, uh, asserts that to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins, Acts 10.43. This kind of preaching, in fact, caused the Holy Ghost to fall on all those who heard the word. There is no getting around pointed scriptural summaries such as these. So, not only does Tejan deny creation, but he also says, well, you know, there's a double imp- implication in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, that the wo- young woman there, well, she must have had a baby, right? And mm-hmm. it's usually called Meher Shalal Hashbaz, is what they point to, rather than it being a prophecy about the Messiah. And this isn't right, okay? That prophecy was specifically about Jesus. Otherwise, it's not much of a miracle that a young woman has, you know, right. a child, mm-hmm. right? Unless she's a virgin. <laughs> so. You take your notes, Vicar? Yep. Okay. All right. But quite aside from these charges and, resp- and responses, innumerable moderate emphases declare their spirit to be a different one from ours. Apparently, casual variances, not in themselves heretical, perhaps, unimportant distinctions, the careless would say, yet in their sum they enunciate a theology different from, and ultimately antagonistic to the Wauwatosa Protestant theology. A Seminex curriculum not oriented in the uh, exegetico-historical methodology, the advocacy of a new pietism as an antidote to dead orthodoxy, the adoption of the uh, MSBS-NSS, the continued sporting of the Roman collar, the affectation of bears, hardly compensating for a solid understanding of Scripture and history, and the invitation, come join our happy throng. These manifestations are out of harmony with Christ in agony on the cross together with his dwindling Kreuzgemeinde, his afflicted church in exile. They they spell an an unawareness of the fire we're to be baptized with. Mark 10, 38-39. The entire moderate effect suggests unchecked intellectualism, with its corollary of visionary enthusiasm. 
So basically, um, a fancy way of saying what we talked about last time about the uh, elite academic. Right. They, uh, they're at the same time over intellectual, and that then leads to um, this sort of fleshy enthusiasm that wants to have no part of Jesus' cross. And I mean, this is exactly what happens in the ELCA, is that they conform themselves to the world. Mm-hmm. And so we see the effects uh, of this sort of teaching, of this sort of spirit, uh, now decades later, where right. it's kind of come to its fullest blossoming, right? Right. So, Berg, uh, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, here's your daily vocab for the day. What was that word that you used uh, in there? Kreuxamunga? Oh, Kreuxgemeinde. Uh, it's a German word. Kreuks means cross, and Gemeinde means congregation. So literally, it means a cross congregation. It's a congregation that is that actually picks up Jesus' cross and follows him. It is one that is willing to suffer as our Savior suffered. And what he's saying here is that the moderates don't want that. The, do you think part of it is they didn't the they they did not want the uh, the uh, the academic the outside of the church would look down upon them. They would lose clout. I I think that's a lot of it. Um, I think you know most people who want to operate in those kind of circles, they want to appear respectable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this even a you know it costs pastors too, right? And even our own congregation members, it's like. Well, why don't we get with the times? Why do we hold uh, to things like closed communion, right? It's not inviting. Mm-hmm. It looks judgmental. Um, why don't we just let uh, fornicating people live together, right? Uh, that's not very inviting or meeting them where they're at, mm-hmm. right? And that was, wasn't that the whole point of Tijan's, well, the gospel isn't spoken in a vacuum. It's true, mm-hmm. but how is he using it? Right? Right. And and that's the thing, is that the cross is folly to the world. The world hates the cross. The world calls Jesus Beelzebub, or else it tries to, to force him into a mold that is actually anti-Christian. Or like the gospel reading we were just talking about earlier, in a, in a sense, downplaying the divinity. Right. Um, or, you know— Make it so that way he doesn't have as much authority on your life, so you can do what you want, right? Um, And that is, I think, one of the greatest lessons for us is that uh, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, it means denying yourself reputation. It might mean denying yourself a place in academia. It might mean um, denying yourself financial stability, um. Mm-hmm. It, there, there are a lot. I mean, but the guys who walked out, they did, in a way, deny themselves of those things. But I mean, yeah, I mean, they were superstars. I mean, remember, this is going on in the '70s when protesting was cool, right. right? I mean, this is what they did. Like, if you look at the stats at Concordia Seminary, um, and you know, whatever you think about the war in Vietnam. Um, most of the students were ardent opposers of Vietnam. They actually, you know, enrolled in seminary to escape the draft, right? So the thing is, is that, yeah, these guys, uh, they might put on the appearance of being a martyr, but in their walkout, they just walked right back in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they uh, were taken onto these this seminary campus in, uh, I think it was Episcopal, an Episcopal seminary campus uh, in Chicago, right? I mean, so it's like, you know, St. Louis to Chicago is not, you know, a step downward right? when you want to be cosmopolitan, right? Right. So the thing is, is that, you know, these guys might claim to be martyrs, but they were doing what the spirit of the age was telling them to do, right? Um, Because the spirit of that age was the hippies, Right. right, and it, they, they it probably was, probably thought they're in their minds that they were saving the church from, well, from dead orthodoxy, right? From you know, oh, this parochial myopic um, understanding, right, that just turns people off. We've got to save the church, 
We got to modernize it. We've got to we got to repackage this so that way people can hear it. I mean, you can just about you can just about justify anything right. by that, you know. And that's exactly what happened. Oh, that that's by the way, I listened to um, some because it was online when they when the ELCA did the the homosexual pastor thing and all that, and I was listening to the discussion. And a lot of the arguments for the change was, well, if we don't change, you know, we're going to die. That was their one of the biggest arguments. Yeah, and that is that it is that is a desire from the flesh, because Christ has made a promise that His church will always endure. So, all right. So I'll finish it up here. Thus, despite the real and terrifying tragedy that has struck Missouri directly and us indirectly, the actual Missouri heresy has not been nailed in either conservative or modern camps, namely the idea that if we state the gospel correctly and follow proven sales techniques, we can and will make a success of the gospel. It is at this point that our spirits have always diverged and do so still. God has worked unremittedly and not always with success to disabuse us of this illusion. So, I mean, I think this is a very, I mean, is it true, right? Is this the problem that affects both the conservatives and the moderates in Missouri? Is it that we believe that if we just say the gospel in the right way and use the right techniques, that it'll bring success? I know, I know I've felt it in my own heart, right? Yeah, I have to. I mean, I can speak personally about this, that, I mean, the question that plagues me in those dark nights is, well, could I have said it better? Mm-hmm. Could I have done something else, right? Because it's a dichotomy in the sense of this, you know, like Vicar works, has been working really hard on his sermon, right? Mm-hmm. Would you say? Been oh, yeah. <laughs> wrestling, why? Because you want to preach... Because it, you want to feed souls. Mm-hmm. And that does make a difference. That's why we work hard on our sermons. But it's it's preaching the gospel, and it's but it's, at the same time, we like to, it doesn't mean it's dependent on you. Well, and it. And how you pack it. And you can it. even preach the best sermon ever. Mm-hmm. But it, it doesn't mean that it will have the kind of success that we want it to have. Yeah, Jesus' right? sermons didn't have a lot of success. I mean, think about, amongst... like, Stephen, the first martyr, right? Mm-hmm. Preaches yeah. one of the best sermons ever. Can I say it? And, it, when it, they, and they... it doesn't convert anybody, right? And can I say it for you? Yeah. That's when they rocked him to sleep. That's when they rocked him to sleep, yep. right? <laughs> See, Vicar gets it. I hope, if you guys don't get it, where can they reach us, Vicar? <laughs> they could email us at feedback at clericalerrors.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash clerical errors podcast, or they can find us at on Twitter at clerical errors P P for podcast at me, bro. So I, so I do think that, you know, I don't, I, I can't speak to the rest of Missouri to say if this is true or not. Um, I do know that it is, uh, you know, it is a particular temptation of mine mm-hmm. that, uh, I have to watch out for. Or um, even, I think to packaging or whatever. You know, that's actually one reason why I kind of I like having the podcast is we could do some things on a podcast and promoting the podcast. We wouldn't necessarily do as a church, like mm-hmm. like we're, we're because we're trying to get some ears to, to to hear what we're doing. You know, we we uh, we do things like a fun logo, and like this logo is so cool, right? Right. You know, I mean. How much time do we spend that making sure our church has a really cool logo? Yeah, I mean, you know, but that's the thing. It's like we don't rely on gimmicks to get people to listen to this podcast or to come to church. You know, but yeah. sometimes we I mean, do. We do, the, we do the podcast because that's part of the fun. I mean, well, yeah, but the top 12. We, we would still we would still do this even if we didn't have the listeners that we have. Right. Right. I would always. Yeah, you're right. If we didn't have a podcast, I would still make fun of Vicar. I mean, you know, <laughs> and you would probably do it online. Right. You know, so but I do think that is I think so everybody, you know, congregations, parishioners, pastors, you know, I think this charge. Um, You need to think about it. Right. Is this our temptation? Is this something, you know, we were afflicted with? Mm-hmm. Um, and. 
I know there are, you know, and in certain parts of the Missouri Synod, I think this temptation is more evident than in other places. And it, it, the temptation can be in a small, small town where yeah. your town isn't growing and, you mm-hmm. know, you hear, remember we had to open up the overflow and... Yeah, you know, so I I do think it's something that we have to we have to think about, wrestle with, and confess. Mm-hmm. If we are guilty of this, you know, uh, you need to confess it, right, and receive forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Well, well, not to uh, not to make things uh, uh, too gimmicky here. At the threat of being too gimmicky, we do have to find an. We do have one more article that bothers you. <laughs> it's true. I, I I'll just quick finish up here. Okay. Nevertheless, toward the moderate position in Missouri's crisis as we now read it, we adopt Luther's attitude in response to Martin Bucer's question, which he posed to Luther at the Marburg Colloquy, it was in 1529, whether Luther acknowledged him and the Strasbourg contingent as brethren, adhering as they did to the Zwinglians in their position on the Lord's Supper, and proud as they were not to have learned their gospel from Luther. Luther said, I am not your Lord, nor your judge, nor yet your teacher. Our spirit and yours simply do not rhyme. It appears evident, rather, that we are not of the same spirit. This does not, of course, preclude the hope and the expectation that individuals among us may, from time to time, when the Holy Spirit causes our paths to cross, find one another in that gospel which is truly comforting to stricken sinners and binds destitute hearts together. So, so do you think this is a part of, do you think the what they call the moderates, the, the, the walkouts, were trying to kind of unite with them or get a hold of them? I think on the surface, there were a lot of similarities to what happened to the Protestants. I think the moderates kind of wanted it, maybe. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's why I really appreciate the work that Philemon Hensel did. Um, that he puts his finger on it that, hey, look, even though our cases look similar, they're not. Right? Mm-hmm. Because you are of a different spirit than us. Right. Um, and I think, you know them, you know, uh, Hensel bringing this out, especially in Tejan stuff on uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, um, and even just calling out uh, the moderate's refusal to suffer under the cross, all are indications that they have a different spirit. And he does it because, you know, of course, we're all accused of judging, right? Right. And that's why I think Luther's words here quoted in, in their fullness, right? That, I am not your Lord, nor your judge, nor yet your teacher— our spirits and yours simply do not rhyme. It appears evident, rather, that we are not of the same spirit, right? Which is not a condemnation. Mm-hmm. It's a recon- It's a recognition that we do not agree. Right. And we can't have unity until we agree. Right. Because at some point, if you don't agree, there's no point of fighting. <laughs> right. I mean, you simply have to go your own way. Right. right? And answer to God for it. But once again... Lutherans have always taught, always, always, always taught that there are Christians found in other denominations, <laughs> okay? This is what every Missouri Senate pastor has ever taught, right. okay? That uh, there are Christians wherever the gospel is proclaimed, even if it's mutilated, and where the sacraments are, even if they're mutilated, right? So, Well, it's because, as you like to say all the time, the Lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> Well, he doesn't work in mis- he works and I I this is why I I prefer our confessions, right? He works where and when he will. Like wind. I've heard that before, right? Yeah, something like from John 3, <laughs> yeah, right? I've heard that. And the, that's the beautiful thing, right? That even a poorly spoken gospel, right? A mutilated gospel can create faith. Mhm. Which that- is, which is why we have the vicarage program. Right. To exactly. Mu- to mutilate things? <laughs> <laughs> I kid. I kid. All right. So. So anyway. enough seriousness. I'm starting to lose. I'm, I'm, my brain is, you know how I am when I get too serious after a while. I hear you. Yeah. I, I'm not going to hide about, I'm going to be honest. So we have, we do, Peter did find another news that bothers Berg. So. I, I warned them in the last episode. Uh, I think I cut that part out, but this, this, this one one's kind of gross. This one's kind of gross. Okay. All right, just before lunch. This will be awesome. All right, Peter, play the intro. There's fake news. There's real news. Then there's real news that Berg wishes was fake. It's time to hear news that bothers Berg. 
See how that's done, Vicar? Did you see that? I think mine was better. <gasps> Ooh. Oh, I think we're of different spirit. <laughs> Except I am your judge. Never mind. <laughs> All right. All right. So, uh, Berg, you ever be in the grocery aisle? Um, you ever buy pizza rolls? You ever had pizza rolls? Oh, college, maybe? College. Been a long time. Um, yes. There's a person that had a rough time when they were trying to buy pizza rolls. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> what in the world? The article is titled, Alleged Pizza Roll Pooper Apprehended uh, After Oklahoma Grocery Store Incident. Wait, was this in Port Berlin? I uh, <laughs> we don't know. It doesn't look like it. This person had a crappy shopping experience, literally. She said she was picking up items in a grocery store in Moore, uh, Oklahoma, with the two daughters when she realized reached for a bag of frozen pizza rolls. She quickly discovered something else in her hand, human excrement. Oh! <laughs> Quote, I picked up, I pick up a bag of pizza rolls and there's literally sh- uh, She says in the video... Uh, <laughs> somebody defecated inside a supermarket freezer onto a bag of Totino's pizza rolls, then uh, covered the mess with another package of the treats, police told the TV station. Oh. Eliminating, oh. eliminating the middleman. Quote, yes. I grabbed the bag, I felt something smushy on the bag, so I turned it over, and there it was. Lah. <laughs> Did they find out who it was? <laughs> Um, more police using surveillance video <laughs> of the crime. They flushed out a man. Flushed out a man identified. Oh, <laughs> uh, that. Oh, they even they said must have loved that. That's the scene great. of the grime. <laughs> oh man! Do they have like a police lineup or? <laughs> I just why why? Oh. I. First of all, okay, how would you... All right, go ahead. Like, how, how would you do this? Like, without anybody noticing? I mean... Good point. I, I, and then, it's cold. Like, so do you remove the bag of Tostitos, do your business, and then put it back? Or do you just open the freezer door? I mean, like... Well, I guess... There's a might, lot of questions There's here. a lot of questions here that just... I, the sheer mechanics of it are mind-boggling. <laughs> <coughs> oh, my god! So, Vicar, this, this is a good discussion. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, you're uh, graduated from the seminary, right? You're a you're, uh, pastor at Shepherd of the Glacier Lutheran Church. And a member comes to you and says, um, Yes, I have a confession. <laughs> I uh, go to grocery stores. Okay. And I mark my territory. So what as a pastor? Well, well, first you have to get a little more specific because people could just go to grocery stores and use the, the restrooms to mark their territory. Mm-hmm. Now, if you say, I mark my territory in the freezers. Right. <laughs> yeah, there are two options, uh, the freezer section or the bath- bathroom, and mm-hmm. they obviously chose number two. Oh. In, so- okay. in so many ways. <laughs> So, Vic, so Vicar, uh, what? How do you handle the situation? Well, how do we get to reconciliation uh, and confession and absolution? Get, cleaning I, will need to be involved. I, yes. I can think of the solution, but how do we get there? We definitely need to confess first. Okay. Yep. Now, how would you in, in maybe? How can we love our neighbors? One way we can love our neighbors. Is maybe by not, <laughs> yeah. But he he might argue, okay. He might argue that hey, pizza rolls aren't that good for you. Mm-hmm. So this way, I am just you know I'm protecting my neighbor from themselves. Mm. What if mm. this What if this uh, supermarket didn't have a restroom and he just really had to go and he was like, well, where am I going to put this? Yeah, maybe it was shipped there that way. Oh, it oh. could be. Yeah. Wait, no, because they apprehended the suspect. I have a question. Here's my question. Do you think the person did that was wearing a mask? Which would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> the irony. <laughs> we live in I, sad times. Yeah. So, Bert, oh. are you uh, sufficiently bothered? I am thoroughly disgusted and grossed <laughs> out and bothered by this. All right, I did my job. <laughs> oh. We, oh, we oh, what some... a wide variety of topics today. Yeah. Should we taste some pizza rolls next week? As long as you buy them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Make sure you vet them first. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, I think that's probably enough. I think we've today. hit a new low. Oof. All right. Thank you for listening. I'm Bullhagen. I'm Berg. And I'm Vicar. And may your pizza rolls <laughs> be clean. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, on Twitter at clericalheirsp for podcast, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time. Uh, Berg, if you had to title your episode for the day, uh, what would you title it? Oh, this. you know, it has to be, it has to be, no, it has to be Seminex number two. <laughs> ah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, that is pretty good. <laughs>